Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Well, it was Independence Day in Jerusalem, also known of as the Passover time. Passover was just the most jubilant time in the entire Jewish world on any given year, where everybody would come back into the town all at the same time, and it would be this great reunion, it would be this happy reunion. Kind of like a combination between the our 4th of July and Christmas all wrapped up into one. Where you and the people who you love the very most all are rejoicing in that triumphant exodus that your ancestors made out of Egyptian slavery. And ultimately culminating into arriving into the land that they were inhabiting in Israel. And yet in Matthew chapter 27 though, On this Jewish Independence Day, it just wasn't quite as festive as it always was before. Matthew chapter 27, there's this ominous energy that that you can just feel emanating in the air. And that's because the chief priest and the religious institution wanted Jesus dead in the worst imaginable way. Well, in our text in Matthew chapter 27, we we see Jesus standing before this, this large multitude of people. Standing next to him is a Roman governor whose name is Pontius Pilate. Well, as Pilate takes one look at Jesus earlier, he knew on sight that Jesus was innocent. And he says it again and again that, that I don't know why you were trying to get me to condemn him to death. He, he's done nothing wrong. I know it. It's very obvious that the only reason why you have handed him over to me is because of envy. Because for some reason, you just hate this guy. And so Pilate makes three attempts to have Jesus released, but every time they they just continue to insist that you need to put him to death. Well, Pilate hatches another idea, and he, he goes to attempt number four to release Jesus. Now, in Pilate's mind, he thinks that this is going to get Jesus released. There's no way that these religious leaders are going to say no to this. And so we see what that is in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 15. Where it says, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called whose name was Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? And so enters into this story and into this situation a man whose name is Barabbas. Now Matthew identifies Barabbas as a notorious prisoner. John in his gospel merely identifies him as as a robber, as a thief. And yet it's Mark who really reveals who this guy Barabbas truly is. As Mark shows us that 
as he calls Barabbas a rebel who orchestrated some insurrection against the Romans in Israel. And apparently it was during this uprising that Barabbas had killed somebody. It may have been a Roman soldier perhaps. It may have been an innocent bystander who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But we just put all of these all together in who, who Barabbas is and what his identity is in the scriptures is nothing more than, than a robber, than an insurrectionist who had blood on his hands. This is who Barabbas is. And yet Pilate gives them a chance, or, or a choice. And I mean, it is by far the most outstanding visual, perhaps, that we will ever be ever given in this world. Where that is who Barabbas is, but I mean, who is Jesus? Jesus said the greatest things that this earth will ever hear. Jesus had, had delivered the Sermon on the Mount, where he completely begins to reorder this this religious world of theirs. Jesus did the greatest things that the world had ever been witness to. He walked on water and he turned it into wine. He commanded it to be still on a sea storm. He healed the sick and he, Jesus even raised people who were dead back from their graves. Anybody who laid eyes on Jesus on sight knew it deep down in their bones, that, that this guy is exactly who he said that he was. The evidence was decisively overwhelming that, that this is the Messiah who they had waited for for over a millennia. And so we have this outlandish visual of, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? In other words, do you want the the very essence of hate? Or do you want the essence of love? Do you want darkness in your land or do you want light in your streets? Are you going to choose a violent insurrectionist with blood on his hands? Or are you going to choose the Prince of Peace who does nothing but go around helping people and blessing people? And as we would know it, the decision of the crowd was overwhelmingly decisive. We're drowning out the cries and the pleas of, of, of this governor Pilate to have Jesus released came shouts of one name and one name only. We want Barabbas. Barabbas, Barabbas, Barabbas. And we want Jesus to go away right now to be crucified. And yes, there is one angle where we are able to see ourselves in Barabbas. Because what, what has just happened for Barabbas? Barabbas has deserved to, to go to the chair in the ancient world. He was supposed to die upon a cross, but, but Jesus takes his place, doesn't he? Jesus becomes the victim of Barabbas' crimes and for the rest of his life, whether he, he actually did or not, Barabbas could have said that, that, he, that how Jesus set me free. How I am living and breathing and I am alive because of Jesus. And you and I likewise can also take our stand with Barabbas and we can say the same exact thing. And yet entirely lost to us though is an even deeper angle 
One that, is, one that has a very disturbing parallel. And it's found in Barabbas' full name. We might ask, well, what is Barabbas' full name? Well, the way that some of the ancient manuscripts identify Barabbas by his full name, it refers to Barabbas as Jesus, Bar Abbas. See, Barabbas' real, literal name in his language was Jesus, Son of the Father. And so you see, Barabbas is so much more than just merely a deranged insurrectionist criminal. Barabbas is an alternative Messiah. He is a different kind of Jesus. He, he is a rival Jesus who these people are to choose between. And for a very long time, I, I misunderstood Barabbas. I've stood in this very pulpit and given a wrong portrayal of Barabbas. I erased it off of our website and I rewrote the sermon this morning. Ripped it up, threw it away. See, I, I used to always envision Barabbas as this whacked out, wild-eyed, homicidal maniac. You know, like, like a serial killer kind of thing. That's not who Barabbas is, though. But rather, Barabbas is a political folk hero. Barabbas is the guy who was so sick and tired of the same thing everybody else is so sick and tired about, about Roman occupation, that, that he actually said, I'm going to do something about it on behalf of the whole nation. We've got to stop picturing Jeffrey Dahmer We've got to start envisioning Che Guevara as we hear that name Barabbas because that's what he is. He is a political revolutionary prisoner. And so with all of this now in our minds, more accurately, what these Hebrews would have heard literally as, as, as they are, are all given a choice between Barabbas and Jesus is not Jesus or Barabbas, but, but are you going to choose this Jesus? Or are you going to choose that Jesus over here? And at the time of Jewish Independence Day, God's so-called nation, God's people, are told to choose which Jesus they prefer. Which Jesus they want released into their, their city. And is it going to be the Jesus who loves his enemies with agape love and who goes a second and third and fourth and fifth mile blessing them, going that extra mile? Or are you going to choose the Jesus who hates his enemies so much that he kills them? Are you going to choose a spiritual Jesus? Or are you going to choose a political Jesus? Are you going to choose the Jesus who loves and who pours out His grace upon all people of all nations? Or do you want this other Jesus over here who, who only loves one country and only the people who look just like Him? Well, which one do you think they chose? <laughs> it's the same exact alternative Jesus that religious people have been choosing for, for centuries. It's the same, a political, violent Jesus who, who was chosen in the days of the Christian Crusades in the 11th century Palestine. It was the same political, violent Jesus who, 
who had ushered in the trail of tears and the Indian removal acts of this very country that we're living in. And you see, what I think goes entirely overlooked in our Bibles is that Pharisees and and Sadducees who we read about, these were two competing religious political parties. These were people who once upon a time had beautiful hearts that, that lived and that I mean, just existed to love God with with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. These are people who once upon a time walked with God as their king. And yet eventually, though, just like so many other people do so tragically, they reached a point where they had decided, you know, God is okay, but, but God just isn't doing it for me anymore. So I need a little bit of God, but a lot of empire in me. I need a little bit of his religion, but I need a lot of bit of all of this patriotism. and All of these politics of the empire. And so many of these men began looking towards politics and empire for their identity now. And it happens to them and it happens to anybody else who goes this way. It hardened their their hearts so severely that they had those hearts of stone that that Ezekiel said, "You, you have to get away from those hearts of stone. And their hearts have been so hardened by empire and by politics that that as Jesus comes and he starts messing with, with all of their politics, they were willing to lie and to kill somebody in order to, to cling to it and to defend that as their identity. And yet even they, though, pale in comparison to the high priest living in this time, Joseph Caiaphas. I mean, Joseph Caiaphas knows that that Jesus is exactly who he said that he was deep down, but he had so much anger and politics in his heart that it corrupted him. John chapter 19, we we hear Caiaphas saying to Pontius Pilate in this exact same moment that, that if you release that man Jesus, you are no friend of Caesar. This is not language of a Jewish high priest. This is, this is very strong political language. This is earthly kingdom kind of language. But then, after that comes the most breathtaking a departure and a betrayal of all that makes him the other Judas Iscariot of, of Israel. As Pilate says, do you really want me to crucify your king? And to this, Caiaphas replies that we have no king but Caesar. We have no king. I mean, every time that I read that statement from the Jewish high priest, I just feel like saying, wait, what? Every six-year-old Jewish boy and girl being asked that question would have said that we have no king but God. Yahweh is our king. Jehovah is our God. See, Caiaphas could quote all of the scripture passages. He wore all of the religious clothes. He prayed the most eloquent prayers. And yet his God was politics and power. And the question that I've been pondering for a very long time now is, 
Is the religious establishment of America of today really any different or any better than that? Because if we take a very honest and open look at this American empire that we're living in, we might just see that we have ourselves a political rival, Jesus, as well. And that's because empire, it doesn't matter what empire it is, empire is a competing religion of its own. When Amanda and I lived in China, what it was was, it was the government saying, oh, you Christians are able to meet as much as you want to. We will allow you to actually worship openly in public. All you got to do is to say that, yes, we love Jesus, but we love our Communist Party first. And then maybe we love Jesus fourth or fifth or sixth. Well, that's a deal breaker for me. Well, we might say, well, that's not the situation in America. And it's not. Praise God. That's, that's true. We don't have communism ruling our country. We are able to meet and to love Jesus first and foremost, and what a blessing that is. And yet if we go just two and a half hours away from where we're sitting to the rotunda in the Capitol building, and we look up, we will see a painting called The Apotheosis of George Washington. It is iconography of George Washington as a Christ figure up in the clouds, flanked by angels holding a sword in his hand. And the most disturbing aspect of the apotheosis of George Washington as a painting is the meaning and definition of that word apotheosis. What apotheosis means is to make a god of. <laughs> and so literally the name of this painting in our nation's capital is when George Washington became a god. You can go on Amazon right now, and you can order a Patriot Bible. It's called a Patriot Bible. And it's got chapters and verses just like any other Bible, but then if you look very closely, though, next to um, specific verses, though, it has quotes from Dwight Eisenhower and Dick Cheney, and Thomas Jefferson. It's got um, a Declaration of Independence right, right um, on par with, with the Sermon on the Mount. Genesis chapter 14 is interrupted with a page-long essay about how it is our Christian duty to bear arms. Just last Sunday in Dallas, Texas, there was a church who every single year has a patriotic worship service. Where on this one week every year, songs of worship to Jesus are replaced with military hymns. Where rather than, than singing amazing grace and worshiping Jesus and giving thanks to Him, they worship with songs like Anchors Away that depict us killing our enemies with TNT and drowning their, their bones in the sea. All while claiming that we worship a God who loves His enemies. Well, all of these things, they, they all go by another name. And that is idolatry. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me this morning. We do very well as Americans in honoring our veterans, and especially those who lost their, their life fighting for our freedoms. 
Whenever we watch the Olympics and we see our flag being raised and we hear our national anthem, that, that is such a beautiful moment that we have as people. We do well in crying tears of civic pride in those moments. And yet just as it is with anything else in this world, it's one thing to um, cry those tears and to rejoice, as we will, rightfully so tonight. And yet the danger is, is just like the scribes and Pharisees and the Sadducees, when we begin looking to country, to patriotism, and to voter identification cards, to political parties and to political personalities, and looking for our, our, our identity in these people and in these things. You see, when we live this way, that distorts our identity. It says that we are no longer Christians first, but we are Republicans first, Democrats first, Independents first, Americans first, and then maybe fifth or sixth or seventh, I guess we can get around to being Christians. And when we trust in empire and in political voices as, as these invaluable voices of truth, we place our identity in men who launch insurrections rather than in the man who brings resurrection and transformation to the world. When we find our identity in this empire, we, we also stand with Joseph Caiaphas and we say that we have no king but Caesar. And we have no heaven but America. If we want to, we can be just like a growing majority of, of the American church already is. Or we can be like the early Christians and be counterculture as a nation within whatever nation we happen to be living among. I love so much how the Apostle Peter opens up his first epistle, 1 Peter 1 verse 1 where he identifies himself and he says, this is who I am. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. See, that is who Simon Peter is. He used to be Simon, which means a pebble. But now he is Peter, who Jesus said, you are the rock. Well, that's who Peter is. But then notice especially how he identifies these Christians who he's writing to where he calls them God's elect, God's exiles, who are scattered about in the provinces. Now notice how he uses three words to identify these Christians, as well as us this morning. First he says that you are God's elect. And that word elect is a, a very significant word in Jewish history. As we see the ancient Hebrews found their, their identity and their meaning in this world as, as even though we are despised by all these other people, there is a living God who says that we are his elect people, his, his chosen sons and daughters. Notice though that now Peter is writing to these Roman Christians who are not Jews and he's saying yet again that it's anybody and it's everyone who trusts in God, who is his elect, chosen people. So first we see that we are, are God's chosen ones. And, and really all that means is that these are the people who 
Even before there was a world, God foresaw as being his holy nation. Peter says, this is what you are. You are God's chosen people. But he also says, and I love this word especially, where he says that you are exiles. Well, as we know, an exile is a person who lives outside of their their native country, either in a forceful way, but also in a preferential way. What is so interesting about him saying that they're exiles is that these these are not literally exiles who Peter is writing to. I mean, he is writing to Christians who are living in the Eastern Roman Empire. See, what this means is that physically, yes, we are living in this empire. And yet spiritually, psychologically, influentially, what we are is exiles. Yes, we are, are residents of the Roman Empire, we are, we are residents of America, but we are citizens of an eternal nation, one called heaven. And I think if there is one message that, that the modern day American church needs to embrace with the most urgency, it is that Republican is not a synonym for Christian, nor is Democrat, nor is American. Those are oxymorons for that word Christian. And yet, if we were to ask the Apostle Peter, what are synonyms for the word Christian? He would say, strangers, sojourners, outsiders, aliens, migrants, exiled foreigners. I just find it alarming that many of these descriptions and these names are words of derision among many Christian communities today. All depending on where you go in the country, a lot of those are even slurs on occasion. (laughs) Peter says, these are words for Christians. And so he says that you are exiles. And then lastly, what he says, though, is that you are scattered. You might have a translation which also says of a dispersion. And what that word dispersion means is it harkens back to those days long ago when the Israelites were far away from their native land, Israel and Babylon and in Persia. And yet notice though, now Peter is giving this a Christian connotation. See, what this means is that every single day that we awake in the morning as, as, as the sons and daughters of God, we, we are still groaning in these earthly tents of ours. Our faith has still not become sight. And so what this means is that even if this happens to be our native country, our own home, home place and our home city, even in our own place, we are exiles scattered about as his church all throughout this world, and we are wandering and we are traveling to our one true home, which is heaven. As the Hebrew writer writes in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking about many of our heroes in the faith, what he says is is that all of these men and women died in faith, not having received what what had been promised to them, but having seen them and greeted them, them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers, that they were exiles on the earth. And as it is, they desired a far better country, he says. That is, that is a heavenly one. And so therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. 
So what this means is that, yes, we, we are residents here, but, but we are mainly exiles as Christians. You see, this is just how significant our immersion in water really is in baptism. I mean, just think about how, how dangerous baptism was in the first century, because all of these people in First Peter who were baptized, what they are, are proclaiming to the Roman world is that Caesar is not Lord and God as you claim. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is God. When I married Amanda, my identity changed drastically. As I put that ring on her finger, as she put the other ring on my finger, what we were proclaiming to the world is that we're through looking. Now my identity is, is that I am Amanda's husband. Amanda's identity, at least in part, is that she is my wife. And in the same exact way, when we put Christ on in baptism, we are undergoing a massive identity change where, where we go from being Americans purely to being exiled foreigner Americans. Pledging our un unrivaled allegiance to Christ and to His way of life above anything else in this world. So as we bring this to its close this morning... It's just so imperative that we adopt and that we embrace the mindset of those early Christians. What was so influential in their growth as Christians was this pervasive mindset every hour of the day is that today, this might just be the day that Jesus returns. Jesus might just come back today. And so we can't get too emotionally invested in all of this empire stuff. We're going to pay our taxes. We're going to pray for heads of state. We're going to honor the king, but, but we will not bow our knee before knees who are going to bow next to our knees at the last day towards a far greater king, Jesus. Rome was great for a while. Babylon was great for a while, but all of these superpowers fall eventually. Israel fell. Babylon fell. Persia fell, and one day, yes, even America is going to fall. And yet when all of the debris settles in the air, only one king and one kingdom is going to be left standing. And that's the kingdom that we are citizens of. A writer named Stephen Madison says, and I'm, I'm going to close here, where he says that sometimes being a good Christian meant being a bad Roman. Before we accuse people of being unpatriotic, let's ask ourselves, which empire are they actually serving? And ask ourselves, which empire are we truly serving? I pray that we will enjoy a wonderful evening of celebrations tonight and, and that we will worship God for all of the blessings that he's given us as a nation. Pray especially that as we walk out of these doors this morning, as we go back into our job sites, that the pervasive thought on our minds is, is that, man, I, I am an exiled foreigner. I'm a stranger in this world. And I'm on my way to the promised land.